Welcome to Between Ourselves, the podcast that centers black women's voices in Europe. My name is Sakai McConey and I'm the presenter and fellow participant in these conversations. So join us as we dive into today's discussion. As you can tell, I have a theme song. Many thanks to Ken Daniels of at Hello Echo on Instagram, who sourced this instrumental for me, which is called Parade and is by James Garden. Today's episode is a two-parter, as it was such a big topic, black men on black feminism. And I'd been toying with the idea of having men on the podcast for a while, um, and we discussed this in the episode. I thought it would be interesting to pick the brains of some black men I know whose perspectives I'm really interested in. And for this conversation, I aim to bring together a mixture of men from different backgrounds, geographical locations, sexualities, and levels of understanding of black feminism. Obviously, this conversation can't capture every single black male perspective, but I think we explored some really interesting ideas. Please note, this was recorded in May 2020, so it was during lockdown, and it's my very first time recording over Zoom, so please forgive any sound inconsistencies. So in this episode, I am joined by Julian Knox, who is a Sierra Leonean poet based in London, whose work incorporates music, installations, written word, and visual art. I'm also joined by Oz Lupawana, who is a brand manager who works in marketing and is based in Amsterdam, but is originally from South Africa. I then have Rohan Ayinde, who is a Chicago-based black British artist, writer and curator. And finally, Jarrell Robinson-Brown, who is a Jamaican-British writer and honorary chaplain at King's College London, and he featured on a previous episode of mine. So let's dive in. We join the conversation as I'm asking how everyone's doing, considering the context. George Floyd had recently been murdered, and so was on many of our minds. How are you doing today? Whoever wants to go first. I'm vexed and guilty. Ooh. Or feeling guilty. Why? Yeah, I took, I took me and the dog on a long, like, vexed power walk all the way to Hammersmith Bridge and back. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I just want to box people, and it's not good, because if I was not a Christian. <laughs> and <laughs> some days that doesn't really stop me. Okay. So, I don't know, I, just, I feel guilty because I couldn't go out of the whole thing. I haven't read one article about what's going on in the States at the moment. I haven't looked at one video. I haven't really engaged because it just stops me. Like, it stops me from doing everything that I need to do in a day. And recently, for some of you I'm writing, I've been reading, like, so many, like, deep, detailed historical accounts of stuff. And I just can't. I'm just like, I know how the story goes. Mm. I just can't do it. Mm. And I've two people call me this morning, basically saying, you know, you've been so silent about this, blah, blah, blah. And um, one of the films saying, you know, you should, you should use your platform to do X, Y, Z. And I was like, okay. Mm. Um... I just wasn't, I'm not here for it today. <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. Yeah, anyway, I'm under the radar because if not, God knows what would happen. <laughs> so that's, that's me. Fair enough. But wait, this is a good day for you. Your book was published. Exactly, I know. This is, yeah. So I'm yeah. happy about that. But yeah. I'm, yeah. We managed to make number one bestseller on Amazon Christian Theology. So that was, that was good. Wow. The Book of Queer Prophets by HarperCollins and edited by Ruth Hunt. And all the proceeds go to Stonewall, so it's looking at um, helping LGBTQ plus people. And it's, it's all works on the intersection of faith and sexuality. So. Mm. 
It's good. It's good. So I'm happy about that. It's a positive thing. Yeah, one good thing. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I'm happy about it. Um, I'm good, you know. Um, but I've been off as well. Like just everything that's going on, on social media has just been like, oh, this is this is just long thing. Age in general, I think I'm in a good place. I got um, an award for like performance um, art poetry oh, wow. um, with Jerwood and Apples and Snakes so that went out today so that was like a good thing so like, oh, great. so yeah like in general yeah and then I've been thinking about this podcast um, and just thinking about like how do I contextualize these conversations in like my whole day <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's good I've, I've had a Because I work in, uh, just, just giving people maybe a better con- context that I work in a, in a corporate world or environment, so it's deliverables and, and so forth. So I've had a few challenges this week, but I've been able to deliver on probably two of the biggest projects that I'm working on, which is incredible for me. And one of them is pioneering, so that's really, really great. So it's also been a good week from that perspective. But it's been so busy, um, and you've had, I've had, you know, the whole lockdown thing and Corona and. I'm almost all corona out, and then, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm just, every single day I've got three or four articles coming my way about what consumers are doing, what businesses, what brands are doing, and, and, and I just have to try and be on top of it, so it's quite exhausting. And then, on top of it all, then, a lot of this information, the news comes out of the USA. With that, I mean, I didn't even react yesterday, because I was just traumatized, and I think I, I then put it up on my social media today that... I'm just traumatized. It's just, it's just traumatic. I, I didn't know how to react. I didn't know what. I just, I, yeah, I just froze. I, I was speechless. I just, there's, there's nothing more I could say or do or think or add to the conversation. I was just dumbfounded. And it was, yeah. And I'm having this crazy stressful week. And then that just, it's just another like realization and brings into focus that there one day is this bigger world out there and what's actually happening out there. That's. That's basically how I'm kind of doing good, but yeah, but traumatized. Oh, God. That feels like that is the constant that we're grappling with. As much as we're being reminded, because there's this moment of social media um, explosion and the reality of another person's life being taken. It's like, these are all things that we all know daily as well, you know, and 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 it doesn't, as much as I feel traumatized by it in this particular moment. I've also been reflecting on this kind of reality for a long time as somebody that's like working towards or thinking about like what does a different kind of world look like and that any discomfort that I ever feel is probably always tinged by the reality of like living in a world where there are certain people who are just undervalued or not valued at all mm-hmm. you aren't considered fully human. Yeah, all of that is to say I feel you, the kind of traumatized but good. Um, I went for a walk, I worked out, and I think kind of puts me in a space of like reflection, positivity. After like deal with all of the things that come along over the course of the day. So my first question is really simple, um, and it's what is black feminism to you? So Jarrell. It's the antithesis, I think, of what white feminism is. So for me, it's everything other than 
white feminism, which is basically, from what I see and what I understand, just concerned really about itself in a way, um, and which which doesn't really have a white view. Mm-hmm. So for me, I think there's something about black feminism which is naturally collegial, communal, um, is is looking out for those who are also oppressed, persecuted, um, forgotten. It's naturally about those outside of the box, if you like. So that, that's, that's one marker for me about what I would say black feminism is to me. When I took some time out to just sort of give it some thought, and for me, black feminism was just black women being able to self-actualize and self-express without having any of the parameters or, or any of the constraints that society has put on them, and just being able to just be themselves and talk about their experiences and envision themselves and chase whatever they want to chase and be who they want to be. Because we, we hear all the time that this is who they cannot be or who they shouldn't be. And that's and that for me was sort of what I was thinking about or what it is to me. Julian? So for me, like I actually was thinking about it and thinking, but like how can I contextualize it to, to like my life? Because there's like the definition that's like out there and mm-hmm. then there's like the personal experience. Like we live in a world today where I feel like if you don't have agency to sort of make decisions over your own body, over your life, um, over how you live, over your health, you know, just over how you survive, Mm -hmm. I think um, that's a problem. Mm -hmm. And I think when I think of um, black feminism, I think of that sort of the idea that like black women, they need to be heard. Mm -hmm. They need um, their agency over themselves and also to be part of community. That, like the global community as a whole because I just feel like uh, from, my, from my experience women, especially black, black women I feel like they're the last people to be considered and and I feel like they're also the, the ones that take after and look after our communities mm-hmm. and look after spaces. When men do the most, the dumbest thing that we could do is <laughs> left to take care of things. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me Black feminism is actually how can I create a space or, or like how can I clear a path um, for women to have agency, black women specifically to have agency. Because I feel like um, what um, was said earlier on, that this idea of like feminism is, is attached to like white women, but I, I think black feminism is another conversation itself. Rowan? So... Yeah, I think similarly to Julian and, and and in many ways kind of like what I've been thinking about is like what does it mean to me specifically as opposed to what the, the definition of black feminism is and mm-hmm. and I think maybe for me it's about a position that we can all stand in. I think when I think about black feminism I think about how I think about an analysis of the world that allows us to fully understand what equity looks like Mm -hmm. i think about an analysis of the world that allows us to have an awareness of like how we all intersect at different points and what those intersections look like and how we need to be understanding of the ways in which our bodies our politics the economics race uh, you know all of these things come into come into being in very particular ways for different 
people and I think like black black feminism it, for me is like the only worthwhile analysis for how to, to change the world um, or at least is, is is a point from which to launch any any robust analysis for how to change the world and so as much as I think it is about women and agency I also think it's about like humanity for everybody it's like it's the baseline for us understanding what we all need to do in order to live in a better world and that starts with us acknowledging the kind of historical grievances that women um, and specifically black women have faced as a result of them being the kind of the meeting points of multiple violences you know? mm-hmm. um, black women being at the front on the front lines at the forefront of like what this world is created out of you know capitalism racism etc etc being the kind of black women are the foundations of that and therefore are also the places from which we can undo those historical violences that was really super comprehensive okay so the next question when i approached you with the idea of like speaking on this topic were you excited, nervous, a bit afraid? Yeah, I wonder what your feeling was. Because I I toyed with the idea of doing this episode for a while just because Between Ourselves centres black women's voices. But I thought it would actually be really interesting to hear black men's perspectives on black feminism um, by itself. What was your feeling when I first approached you to join this discussion? And so that's kind of a mixture of things that I've been feeling and thinking about in the 
run up to this. Us? So, you asked me, I was figured that I'm quite ill-equipped and maybe not the best person to, to speak on, on this topic. In terms of, and that was for me thinking about my level of education on it, how much I've read up on it, and my own engagements, or, or maybe how I grew up, and I grew up with my dad and my brothers, and I went to an all-boys school, so I'm going, I might be caught flat-footed in this, in this discussion or this conversation, so I was quite intimidated, but I guess at the end of the day, um, I also looked at it as an opportunity to learn and hopefully add my voice to what I might think is, and maybe get myself educated too. Um, so add my voice and, and also learn. Within my own environment, people that are close to me, I've got a lot of really great female friends, colleagues, and so forth. And, you know, we engage a lot on, on, on many different topics. I thought based on off the back of that sort of, uh, those conversations and everything else, I thought maybe I, I might have something to add even with my uniquely, uh, I'll call it uniquely masculine background. And Jarrell? I was thinking, I, I was probably a bit um, hesitant maybe, and, and also a bit wary of saying anything or, or kind of being really keen to be involved, partly because I'm really wary of talking about things I don't know much about. And mm-hmm. I think for me, I'm so used to living in a world and functioning in a world where people actually do listen to what you say <laughs> and you have to be fairly cautious about what you say and how you say it and I just realised that I'm quite ignorant in terms of reading things around black feminism mm-hmm. um, you know explicitly about that I know that I'm I'm connected to black feminism and I've encountered that in my life but to be able to speak in an articulate way about it might not be my gift so I was a bit kind of wary about that mm-hmm. but I'm really keen now yeah. um, and excited to be part of this so yeah that's me. Perfect. Thank you. And yeah, I'm really excited for the conversation and I'm, I'm happy that you all agreed. When do you first remember engaging with black feminist thought? And that doesn't have to be like theory. That can be black feminism through praxis. So yeah. When do you first remember engaging with black feminism? I'm trying to think. I think in, yeah, at home. So I, I think I saw it in my grandmother particularly. And also in, in a lot of the black women in the church that I grew up in, I saw a lot of just incredible kind of existence, I think. I think they were incredibly, they showed a lot of community and love for each other. They, they embodied for me, I think, what I think Christianity is really about. And I admired them because of how much they loved each other and how, how much they seemed to love even the people who weren't part of their, their inner circle. If I ever saw people kind of show welcome and hospitality um, and inclusivity, I saw it amongst them. Mm. Um, and I also saw a kind of deep passion for the young people in the church as well and the, the way in which they encouraged us um, and gave us just that kind of support, which I think for me was, was a symbol of something very powerful that I haven't really seen in lots of other places. And I also saw incredible strength in those women as well in the face of racism, misogyny, patriarchy, which is still at work um, in all of the context that they were in. Mm. And and yet they managed to remain resilient and joyful and, and kind people. And also my nan, she was someone who, you know, taught herself how to drive secretly. <laughs> and she, you know, she, she just did it. Didn't tell her anything, got her um, license and never drove. She never bought a car. 
was a cleaner and also worked in a um, in like an old people's home cleaning etc like she was out early in the morning mm-hmm. back late at night and just kind of constantly seeing this grind and then Pat who is also my neighbour she she's a um, she's a nurse in, in a hospital and kind of just just watching them and also seeing how nurturing and caring they were and have been to me as a as a young black man um but also stern and firm and like never never missed an opportunity to teach me a lesson mm-hmm. um i think that was like one of my first interactions uh, and a continued interactions of like respect for um and, and with and in relation to, to to black feminist school and then i suppose like at the same time as thinking about all of this and thinking about these two different experiences of like the lived experience of coming into contact with black feminist school and then thinking about like as it relates to theory i think i was able maybe to put words and language to experiences i've had in relation to, to black women probably in the last only in the last few years and, and, and specifically through my time at, at grad school my work is about blackness and about where and how and in, in what ways blackness intersects and is a necessary place from which to have a dialogue about how the world can change mm-hmm. and i don't think i was thinking specifically about black women you know and it's so easy to to just talk about blackness and to not center the experiences of black women so as i was doing my work in in graduate school having black and specifically one a black woman instructor who became a mentor for me kind of really point out the necessity also of grappling with the language and the theory that was coming specifically from black women like audrey lord or even angela davis mm-hmm. um, patricia hill collins and having to read that stuff and grapple with a lot of the theorists that I've been reading and how unconsciously a lot of the, the black theorists that I had been quoting and citing in my work and thinking in, about in my art had missed an opportunity to really get to the bottom of things mm-hmm. because they were missing out black women or queer people as well or mm-hmm. you know all of these different intersections that like somehow it seemed okay to just talk about blackness but mm-hmm. um, I think the more I read and the more I became aware the more I understood the necessity of of couching a conversation about blackness and necessary change in also like these other intersections and, and black feminist thought being like a key site or a key intersection from which to, to set sail as it allows you to see everything. You know, I think mm-hmm. if, you, if you're just talking about blackness from a male perspective or from a man's perspective, it's so easy to forget the struggles of of people um, who aren't male-bodied, you know, mm-hmm. or who aren't um, male-presenting. If you want to change the world or if you want things to change even a little ways around you, you have to be able to look at the world through the eyes of people who have been constantly maligned or forgotten, underrepresented. Yeah, I think, to me, it was my grandma, but, like, I didn't call it
And like, you know this idea, like, when you become a Christian or like born again, the idea of like being born again. Mm-hmm. I always say like my second one was like when the when I read the hooks as well. And those are the moments. 
things that made me go, ooh, mm. I need to change, ooh, mm. this is not right, ooh, why do I think like this, mm. you know? Mm. And I think, like, talking about it, I was saying that the consequences of our actions, like, majority of the time when I mess up, or just in culture when we mess up, mm. I, I just feel like black women are the ones to pick up, you know, the, the scraps, like, mm. you to, like, Mm. Um, when you know, when like our dads are in there, mm. when you know, like, or our dads do something dumb or silly, mm. like the consequences come back, and then the women have to like deal with that. So yeah, so for me, that's how I kind of understood it. Thank yeah. you, Oz. When do you first remember engaging with Black feminism? So I had to, I had to take a step back and sort of try and identify yeah when or what it may have looked like or it may have seemed like and then I when I took a bit of a peer back into it I, I I saw I saw a few moments that really stick out for me. And the first person from a sort of black feminist thought or was my grandmother. So uh, just to give you just to give anyone a specific context, my grandparents from my father's side got divorced many, many years ago. I think my dad was still maybe a kid, mm-hmm. like eight years old. And but when I I mean when I popped up and I first remember she was this she ran the family. So she had three kids and it was Machezi that was uh her, her, her family name or totem. And Machezi was like she ran everything and everyone was kind of she knew who she was. She was kind, caring, firm, but fair. It was just she was incredible. So just listening to how people spoke about her and how everyone sought counsel from her and mm-hmm. in the community the role she played and how much she was a leading figure within that um, in that community and in her life and who she just was to everyone else. Um, I think that was it was my grandmother, then my mother's older um, eldest sister, and she was someone else who I also looked up to, and I told you she's still she's alive and up. She was also leading her family and her community and unlike my grandmother, she was married, but even within the context of her being married, that didn't define who she was. Mm-hmm. Um, she was so multidimensional, being a, a mother, being an older sister, being a sister, being a that, and just being able, and being very comfortable, these people are very comfortable with who they are and they understand who and what they mean to people around them. And that for me was sort of incredible. And then, of course, and then I came to my mom, and I'm, I'm highlighting when I look back now. So I'm turning 32 this year, and I think I only read Bell Hooks like three, four months ago. And that really, that kind of, I think all the, there were, let's, let's call it a field. There was a field that was there that had lots of bits of uh, petroleum and, and all that was just waiting to be lit. <laughs> and now when I, I read it, I got to understand it a bit more from a from an intellectual perspective. 
really interesting as well because Bell Hooks is an African-American writer and from a black British perspective and in like a black South African perspective there are real parallels and understanding like I think that's really unique that Bell Hooks is able to kind of have that far reach although I know Oz you were saying that as you were reading it you were thinking oh I wonder how this would be slightly different in a South African context. Okay, so the next question that we kind of explored a little bit. How do you understand your own masculinity and how it relates to feminism? I th- I, it's a weird one. As someone who is part of the LGBTQ plus community and black and male, I sometimes wonder, I, I realised the other day that my entire life has been nurtured and only made possible because of black women. Like, no black man has actually, okay, this might be drastic as a statement, but that man has actually contributed to my nurture. Like, for my survival in the world hasn't personally been enabled in terms of family links or relationships by a black man. I don't know what that's like. I don't know what it's like to live in proximity or to be nurtured by a black male. And I think, you know, the people that raised me were my grandmother, my aunt, and my sister, and that's that's... It was quite significant to me to kind of realise that the other day, that my safety as a child, that my kind of nurture as a child was because of the hands and love and the care of many different black women. And sometimes I wonder when I reflect on my sexuality, what impact that made on me um, Mm -hmm. and on my own understanding of masculinity. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm certainly not saying that the only reason that I'm not heterosexual is because there were no men in my life (laughs) as a kid. But I do sometimes wonder on what impact that did have on me as a person um, and what impact that has on my ability to make and sustain relationships 
um, as an adult with other men, the way in which my masculinity has been impacted or not. I don't know if that's an answer, but it's something. It's just something mm-hmm. I noticed the other day how important that has been to recognise as the black male that I'm only really here because of black women and their kind of sacrificial love and, and nurture and protection and education. I not really notice perhaps too deeply, recently at least. Like, were you conscious of that absence, a nurturing force from black men in your life growing up? Like, was it something that you that saddened you? Yeah, I wonder how that absence felt. I think I definitely noticed it. Um, my best friend in childhood was his, his mother and his father had broken up, but his dad was always like taking him away, um, and they would like do things together, and he was like they'd go on holiday together. And I used to notice that Daniel's dad had a much bigger role in his life than mine, and my dad just wasn't around, wasn't really interested. Mm. Um, or if he did interact, it was kind of very scheduled and very clinical, and it's not emotionally helpful. <laughs> <laughs> so I used to kind of and just go along because people have dads, and this is what you're meant to do. But it didn't really mean much to me. It didn't really have any impact on me. And I think it was more detrimental because it felt so clinical, I think. Um, mm. And I didn't feel like my dad kind of wanted to be involved. So when we did spend time together, you could feel that it wasn't really um, natural to him. And his father wasn't really around for him. So he was mm. basically perpetuating what he had experienced. And in later life, you'd think that would give me sympathy, but it hasn't. <laughs> reinforced a lot of my feelings about him and made me made me actually respect the women in my life a lot more because one of the things they never did in respect to my father was talk down about him in front of me lots of negative things were said about black men but about my dad nothing was ever really said which in a way i kind of respect because it meant that i came to my own conclusions later on as well who wants to go next how do you understand your own masculinity and how it relates to feminism Advantages, 
but while I've been able to lean into that and go and go for it, I've been incredibly of continuously mindful and always made sure that when it comes to places where we need to make decisions or we need to any opinions that need to be heard, I've always tried to make sure that the women, specifically black women, I'm always mindful. And now in this environment within the Netherlands, it's a bit tricky because I don't, I'm not really surrounded that, by that many black women in the in the corporate space. Uh, but back home, it's always looking out for them. I've got your back. Yeah, because I, I know that by design, it's designed against or for you not to succeed. You're mm-hmm. always on the back foot. So I've always tried to basically use whatever bit of privilege that I have, use it and redirect it in that way and always make sure that this person is heard and make sure that this person is shining because I know that by design, this world, this, this world that I'm existing in, it's working against specifically the black woman. Your childhood experience is almost the inverse of Durrell's. So there was the absence of the black male for Durrell and you were brought up more so by your father. And so I wondered, did that impact how you viewed black women? Did you miss that? Or you had it through your grandma and your visits with your mother? I, I think I, I think I definitely missed it because, I mean, that, that, constant, that constant and consistent feminine touch because at some point... My grad went back to living in Grainstown when I was sort of moving around the country. And and at that point, it's you, your dad, your brothers. That's, mm-hmm. that's how it was for me. And I don't think the holidays or anything like that was enough. But I think there's a foundation that they lay. I always give kudos to my, to my dad for this in terms of him being, he's a very well-rounded person, intellectually incredibly strong, emotionally, um, someone who has the masculinity and feminism, in fact, because he always used to say, I'm playing mom and dad in this situation. So he had, was able to really try and nurture everything and get everything out there. And when he would identify something lacking, he would always try and bring a family member in. For us as guys, we never missing that feminine touch or that mother's touch. When my mom, of course, isn't around, which is we only see her in, during uh, vacation. So, yes, there is, there was a lack because there's, it's that constant, you know. When, if you have your mom or your grand or someone who's there the entire time through a, let's call it an 18-year period, they're able to track and identify your growth and maybe look at where you might have gaps and mm-hmm. get fill them in quite easily. What my dad did try and do is go look as long as you have someone there who's able to sort of try and nurture that and fill in those gaps. Let's see how, how where you guys end up. And I think we touch wood, we haven't ended up too bad, <laughs> my brothers and I. <laughs> Who else wants to go? This is such a big question. I feel like this one is like, oof, um, how do you understand your own masculinity as it relates to, and how it relates to feminism? That, yeah, I feel like there's so many layers um, to that, and it's been really fascinating to hear both Jarell and I talk about their experiences and thinking about like what that looks like um, and how how we are um, how we are shaped how we are shaped in, in particular ways by different experiences. I think I think a lot of I mean I've been thinking about a lot of things 
as it relates to, to this conversation, um, one of the things I've been thinking about is is the idea that like not all women are, are feminists, you mm-hmm. know, and, and, and mm-hmm. that's not to, that's not to kind of be in here and try to bash women at all, but it's just to think about like it, it's incredible to kind of hear about the stories that that all of us are sharing and to kind of reflect on how the women in our lives have shaped the way that we live and the way that we think about ourselves. And it's incredible to think that there's that there has been like a a conscious maybe an aware communication of certain kinds of values from women but i think you know and when i think about my masculinity and when i think about feminism i also think about like the importance of people men and women actively being aware of the ways in which systems are ossified into particular ways the ways that women as much as men also feed into or uphold certain patriarchal values that, mm-hmm. that undermine the potential for feminism to to be a place from which we can all benefit when i think about my masculinity i think about i think about the men in my life i think about the men i choose to intimate with um, the men I choose to have as close friends and how all of all of those men have this they have something in them I would say that that is always grappling with the reality of their masculinity that is always grappling with the fact that that masculinity is is in many ways a uh, I don't want to say it's a poison but the way that masculinity has been formed in our societies, I think is always in a way to oppress other people, whether that be women or whether that just be like queer people, whether it be trans people, like there's, there, mm. there's always like masculinity poses itself as, as a threat to equity or as a threat to equality. When I think about my masculinity, I think about it and, and, and its relationship to feminism, I think about the men I surround myself with and the importance of surrounding myself with men who are aware of the ways in which their madness and their masculinity has been part and continues to be part of like a a sickness, so to speak, in the way that we govern our world, the way that we govern our societies. That's one of the most important things for me when I think about Feminism, as it relates to my masculinity, is is, is being around men who, who also are having those conversations and who have have that kind of an awareness. And I think that that understanding came from, I think, lots of the because my father wasn't around when I was growing up. I think the men that were in my life and the, the men that my mother kind of allowed to be in my life in a meaningful way always had a level of respect and a level of I don't want to say softness, as in to, to suggest that feminism is soft, but that there was like a there was an other side that wasn't like this overtly male and masculine and kind of toxic masculine energy. And so my relationship to myself and to my own understanding of what it means to be a man has always been through an engagement with with men who have this duality in them and who have a, a willingness to to lean into that duality and to um, 
and to not only be in that space of um, of masculinity and hyper masculinity. And so I suppose all of that then comes back to my mother um, and her relationship to to race, her relationship to politics and specifically her kind of socialist and Marxist politics which comes from her father, you know, and like that for me, her understanding of me being a black man, but also recognizing the importance of raising me as a as a man who had to understand the importance of women's struggles. I think kind of therefore has been the, the, the groundation, the foundation, the kind of um, the place from which to to live in the world. And she, she also followed Rasta for a long time. And one of the reasons she kind of fell out of being a Rasta, I mean, there were multiple reasons, but one of the things that, that, that she found really difficult to grapple with was the kind of male-dominated relation of Rastafarianism and the way that there was, as much as it was a beautiful and uplifting um, uh, way of living life, there was also like a continuation of particular um, patriarchal and male-dominated space that didn't give as much space for women to to be leaders or to, to have voice or to um, to shape dialogue. And so, so I've, I've also always had that. You know, my white mother has inculcated me into an understanding of feminism and black feminism through her navigating black space as a woman, but also as an ally to black women in those black spaces. And um, which I think is really important for me. I've had the example of someone who has had to be an ally, you know, if if they want to exist in the world that they want to exist in, you know, and so I has had to do that work continually as a white woman to both grapple with the realities of race, because that's something that she is like, super mindful about and, and, and is aware of and is always talking about but can't do that without acknowledging the fact that she's a white woman and so then for me then as a as a man seeing that blueprint has been a way of acknowledging my being a man and wanting to be in spaces that feminism and black feminism is kind of the, the, the foundations for the dialogues that are happening mm-hmm. but having to also navigate those spaces as a man. I've been fortunate to, to have a, a model to follow in my mother, who, yeah, who, who has also had to, to be aware of her identity in spaces that she wants to be in because of her politics. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that is the kind of root then of how I understand my masculinity as it relates to feminism and, and as specifically black radical feminism. Brilliant. Thank you. I so I think of it um, in a sense that, like, if I argue for the equality of um, black, like as a black man, like I'm arguing for the equality of like blackness, um, but then turn around and deny anyone else their humanity, mm-hmm. like, and all being blind by it, and like just ignoring their dignity, ignoring their equality then I guess I'm a hypocrite. Mm-hmm. So for me, um, I guess in, in a sense, like my masculinity 
like it's complete when I guess my I guess the feminine counterpart within within my life or the women in my life mm-hmm. um, feel supported and also sacrificed for. Mm. Um, and the reason why I say that is because I feel like, and I'm not saying I get this right all the time, but I think that's the extent to which I think black men should be thinking about it because um, I think there's a difference between being a an ally and a co-conspirator. So mm. like the idea that like I could talk about it mm-hmm. or I could put myself at risk for it. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And I think it'd be a shame if my daughters or my wife or my friends or like people around me feel like I, like I love them but I didn't risk anything for them. And so I think that's how I kind of think about it in terms of, like, if I look... And I think, like, you understand yourself when you understand how you relate to the people that are oppressed around you. I think that's how I understand the culture anyways, because I'm constantly trying to, like, hey, I'm here, like, hey, like, don't step on me, hey, like, move, hey. You know, like, yeah, that person that's in the space that's just constantly saying, hey, like, and I feel like to not be aware of the other person that's also saying, hey, I'm here, be aware, is to then be toxic within their spaces. So mm. for me, it's like, how how can I live within these spaces and be an ally and a co-conspirator because, you know, I'm, I'm putting things that are risk because I love them, if that makes sense. Yeah, when I think of feminism, when I think of just, yeah, just like oppression, just different kind of oppression, those are the moments that I think about my privilege. And often as a black male, I guess because we're so, you know, trying to fight the good fight, whatever that is, um, we often forget that we also have privilege. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and what does it look like? To, to lay down our own privilege for others to stand up on them, you know? Because I feel like in culture anyways, before I guess encountering like the feminist sort of language, for me being masculine or coming into manhood, I guess the conversation of like dominance, rage, strength, like but like it all that toxic kind of conversation comes into play. For me, it's like thinking, what does what does strength look like outside of brute force? You know, like just watching my daughters being born, like gave me a new perspective of strength. Mm. And now I just can't get myself to say men are stronger than women. <laughs> I just can't get myself to do that. You know, I just find it so impossible. Now I, I just can't do. It. Yes, I might be able to put a few people on a headlock. But after watching that, I'm just like, nah. I just, I just, so yeah, that's that's how I that's how I look at it. This language of co-conspirator, and I'm I'm gonna I'm taking that one. <laughs> okay, Oz, I'm gonna quickly ask you. If you do, how do you speak with other black men about feminism or masculinity? And 
specifically if it's a group chat what i've found in speaking to guys specifically on like a whatsapp group chat you always have guys who are pro at least in my group chats maybe let me frame that further in my group chats guys who are very pro like hyper masculinity toxic masculinity too and for me it's i i take a, a position of learning and trying to make sure that i'm teaching and getting guys to critically think beyond where their viewpoint is so i try to understand where their viewpoint comes from so after that i know what my stance is so i think that's that's very important to so understanding what your stance is and how i think about things and i always frame it in relative to my lived experiences growing up uh up until where i am now today and understanding also my privilege and going okay cool I'm, i acknowledge this i acknowledge this so those become moot points when we're talking when we're really sort of rolling up our season getting into it and then i, I become quite adversarial after at a certain point because i i figure that i've come to acknowledge or see about guys within this is that sometimes people don't want to move so sometimes i move from cheating to just becoming an adversary against masculinity and toxic masculinity specifically because guys who want to perpetuate and continue the status quo and don't ever want to shift and open up the table and open up their viewpoint and then it's it's really a battle of the wits and who can present the biggest the best argument yeah it, it it can get really it gets really tough i get i get really tough on it too like i get to stop half a day and really and educate but it also gets tiring it also gets tiring to tell, tell you the truth to be honest where i'm just like being a champion and if you're a champion of any new school of thought and any way of living at some point it also gets tiring where you just go look I, today i've had a long day i'm not doing this today Mm-hmm. I'm actually not going to school you. I'm not going to fight with you. I'm not going to do this today. So I'm tired. Next week, same time, same place. I'm back. <laughs> and it, it, it can really be. And so how I speak, the tonality can go from, so it, go, it starts from a point of wanting to understand the other. And then it goes to a point of exchanging of ideas. And then it goes to a point of trying to teach the other. And then I go into just being an adversary of the other. And then, really fighting intellectually fighting have you seen a turnaround have you seen people who thought certain things change their view like have you also because it also sounds like in your yeah in your fight to kind of challenge toxic masculinity you kind of have to perform that masculinity as well you have to kind of dominate them in order for them to know they're wrong have you seen a, a change in thought or change in approach from people Yeah, it would be like it would feel like blowing my own trumpet to go. <laughs> yeah, that's 
because they no longer want to be viewed in this perhaps negative light mm-hmm. because I've presented a better argument and then that's, that's the way I see it. So hopefully yes. I, I want to say hopefully yes, but I always say the jury's still out because beyond our group chats or whatever, I don't know what you're like still in your private engagement outside of this. So at this point, Oz had to leave as we were having such a good conversation that we ran over time. So we all say goodbye to each other, and this is where I'm going to end part one. Thank you so much, guys. Um, I'm, I'm really looking forward to listening back to this, specifically the parts that I'm going to miss now, because I've learned so much from you guys from the time that I've spent. Thank you, Oz. Good to speak to you too. Yeah, thank you, Oz. Uh,